This is your host, Caitlin Cook, and welcome back to the Dead Kate Bounce Experience. This week's guest is Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge, a global alternative investment firm, and founder and chairman of SALT, a global thought leadership forum and venture studio. Prior to founding Skybridge in 2005, Scaramucci co-founded investment partnership Oscar Capital Management, which was sold to Newberger Berman in 2001. Earlier, he worked in private wealth management at Goldman Sachs. In 2022, Scaramucci was ranked number 47 in Cointelegraph's top 100 influencers in crypto and blockchain. In 2016, he was ranked number 85 in Worth Magazine's Power 100, the 100 most powerful people in global finance. In 2011, he received Ernst & Young's New York Financial Services Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Anthony is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a board member of the Federal Enforcement Homeland Security Foundation. He's also the author of five books. Scaramucci served on President Donald J. Trump's 16-person Presidential Transition Team Executive Committee, and in 2017, briefly served as Chief Strategy Officer for the Export-Import Bank and White House Communications Director. Scaramucci, a native of Long Island, New York, holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics from Tufts University and a Juris Doctor from Harvard Law School. We discuss everything from crypto sentiment in the hedge fund space to Algorand, as well as his outlook on crypto in Washington, and even his relationship with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. It's a jam-packed hour, folks. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Anthony. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency. All right. So something coming out of my mouth that I didn't see on my 2022 bingo card, Anthony Scaramucci, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to be here, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you. So lots to get through here. First question, of course, you know, you have your JD, you've authored several books, you've worked in investments across the board, politics. At what point did you get the crypto bug? When did you start? Well, you know, it's interesting because I obviously, and I love this about cryptocurrency, except for this year, because we're in a raging bear market prior to this year, everyone said, oh, wish I wish I started earlier. I wish I started earlier, you know? Um, and so I was introduced to the concept of Bitcoin in 2013. And I think there's a tweet where I said, this is a bunch of garbage and it's a caveat emptor or something like that. So I didn't really understand it. And then I went into the government. It was ill-fated. I was in the White House for 11 days. But prior to that, people don't remember this. I was the chief strategy officer at the XM Bank. And so there I learned about digitization of the dollar, potentially the Fed in 2017 had actually put out a white paper discussing this. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to digitize the dollar um, and they're going to do it over the blockchain. I got to get myself up to speed. And then I got myself fired very shortly thereafter. So I bought the URL skybridgebitcoin.com. I returned to Skybridge. And I think 
it still took me a little while because I really had to do a lot more research. I had to get comfortable with the escape velocity position of Bitcoin and Medcalf's law and all these different things. You know, there were a lot of reasons why Bitcoin should have failed, frankly, uh, but it didn't. And I think it reached escape velocity once it got through 100 million wallets. I think they announced yesterday on Glassnodes that we now have 1 million wallets that have at least one Bitcoin. So wow. that's pretty cool, you know? And so I got involved, I would say, November of 2020. Uh, the sort of real irony of the whole thing is I think I bought my first Bitcoin at around 17,000. And here we are two years later, it's around 17,000. Now, of course, we did one of these, you know, we created an Everest mountain in between those two prices, but there it is. You know what I mean? Funny stuff. It's we've definitely come full circle with that <laughs> for sure. And I definitely wish that I had gotten in at the first time Bitcoin was at 17,000, but you know, the opportunity came up again. So lucky me. Um, I am curious on, on the side of, you know, in the hedge fund space and in terms of institutional adoption of crypto, I mean, you started looking into this space pretty early, like you just mentioned. How have you seen interest in institutional adoption of crypto grow over time since you got involved in the space? Well, I mean, I think it's grown tremendously. I think that the uh, the, the bull market that we experienced, the 18-month surge, let's call it from April of 2020 to it ending probably five or six months ago, that, that surge, I think we could say uh, created a lot more capital investments, a lot more investments in infrastructure, the improvement of the Lightning Network, the introduction of different layer ones, including Algorand Solana, uh, the merge of Ethereum, which I think by and large was very successful. Um, and so um, the price activity, which is inducive of the Fed risk off assets in terms of volatility in the NASDAQ, the fraud, uh, which I'm happy to talk about, but layers of fraud, which would include three arrows and FTX and the over leverage of BlockFi or Voyager or Celsius, all of that collapsing prices, okay, you had underneath all that, if you will, lots of capital expenditures in terms of building the applications of the internet. I think the problem, though, is if you are looking at it today, um, you're like, okay, it has limited use cases right now. Uh, and so therefore you say, okay, well, will it ever amount to anything? And so I try to remind people of where we were 20 plus years ago with the web. You know, when I was a 34 year old, 24 short years ago, I was logging onto the web with a fat box computer, a dial up modem, a corded mouse. And it was taking 35 seconds for my AOL landing page to arrive on my computer screen. And so the notion that we would be where we are today was hard to believe. But imagine somebody teleported in from 2022 and it said, okay, you see this contraption known as the web. You're going to have Wi-Fi in your house. You're going to dial into it from anywhere. Your phone is going to be a supercomputer and there'll be a billion or so people downloading 4K video on the web, and there'll be trillions of dollars of transactions that take place. And so it's very hard to see where Web3 is going, you know. But when Apple eventually 
encrypts and creates a web three centric phone that doesn't need a password and is like totally tied to your fingerprint or your DNA, um, you'll know that you're moving from web two into the world of web three and full decentralization. So um, the software's there, the technology's there, the apps are improving, but I really do think we're in the 1998 time zone. Um, and I think it's going to take 15 or 20 years to get this right. But the results of getting this right are going to be magnificent. And I think people could get spooked out of it because of recent prices. They could say, oh my God, this is a disaster. Warren Buffett says it's rat poison. I got to stay away from it. And I think they'll be making a very big mistake. I hope they don't do that. I hope they don't as well. And you bring up a lot of interesting points there. I think one in terms of you know, a lot of the commentary around the space, to your point, a lot of the pushback that I see these days, and I'm curious for your take as to why this might be, is around use cases. You know, where is this space actually going? Why do we actually need this? Is it really solving for anything? And sure, there is a lot of vapor in the space now. You see a lot of that in any high growth space. There will be a high rate of attrition there. Not everything will be long lasting. That's inevitable. But to your point, it's not, you know, these things take time and it might be hard at the present moment to see where things could go 10, 15 years down the road. But from an investment perspective, a lot of the time you're on longer time horizons and you want to think about things and think about technology in terms of long-term adoption rather than the short-term, you know, volatility and crypto winter that we're living through right now. Yeah. I mean, you're bringing up all the right points. I mean, I, I like to tell people everybody's a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. You know, I, I had people that I put in Bitcoin and, you know, the minute it dropped 10 or 15%, they told me, I said, hey, we're going to do this. Let's lock this. Give me a small amount of money. Let's lock it away for five years. And the minute it dropped 15%, okay, give me my money back. You know, and that that happens. That's part of uh, market psychology. And that's part of like the way people think. It is a highly volatile very speculative asset. So I'm not sitting here uh, with my life savings in it, but I do have enough in this where if I get this right, and again, I think time will bear this to be correct, but if I get this right, it'll be a uh, colossal home run for everybody. Definitely. And I, I think a lot of us, at least those who have taken the time to really understand it and dig in, looking at the bigger picture, feel at least obviously biased working in the space that this isn't going anywhere and it's only going to continue to grow. Um, but then there comes the opportunity to invest in specific projects, specific blockchains. And one that I wanted to ask you about, because admittedly, I, I don't know much. I'm pretty slated on the Solana side of things, obviously Bitcoin, Ethereum from learning in the beginning, but you re you wrote a book even on Algorand. And I didn't know that you were an Algo fan until I started looking through your Twitter a while back before I asked you on this podcast. But how did you get involved in that? And where do you see the opportunity specific to that chain versus others? So really good question. So um, my old boss, uh, my career very quickly. I went to Tufts, Harvard Law School. I was at Goldman for seven years. I left and built a company that I sold. Uh, it got bought by uh, Newberger Berman. And my old boss at Newberger Berman was on the advisory board of Algorand. And so he got himself into cryptocurrencies about six, seven years ago. Sylvia McCauley, who is the inventor of Algorand, obviously he did it with a technology team, but his 
core concepts which created Algorand. He's a uh, a Turing Award winner, which is like winning the Nobel Prize for computer programming. He's considered the father of cryptographic or cryptology, if you will. Great mathematician. Developed Algorand, and it's got this very interesting, I won't go into it in the podcast, but you can read about it in my book. I wrote a 100-page book to just describe what he's doing, the uniqueness of it, and why it's a decentralized chain that is scalable. He sort of has uh, solved for the trilemma. It's secure, scalable, and decentralized. And the problem, though, and again, I'm always candid when I talk, is they don't have the youthful, aspirational, or inspirational elements of a Solana. So if you go and meet with Anatoly or Raj, or you look at their development community, or you look at their marketing strategy, They've built more hacker houses. They push more money out of their foundation for developers. They've got a lot more on-chain activity. And so even though the main net for Solana has gone down a few times, I think they would argue, well, it's gone down because we're having a tremendous amount of volume. Algorand hasn't gone down because it doesn't have the volume of Solana. And maybe, maybe it'll never go down. Maybe Silvio is right. Maybe it's scaled in such a way where it won't go down. But this is a lot like... Uh, a startup, uh, if if you or it's like the restaurant business. If I have really amazing food in my restaurant and I open the restaurant and I do nothing to market the restaurant or I don't invite the concierge staff at all the local hotels to come and eat at the restaurant so that they'll start referring their hotel guests to it, and I don't do certain things to market the restaurant and create buzz, no matter how good the food is you're not going to get people in the seats at the restaurant. And so my issue with Algorand, and I've been very upfront about it, is guys, you have amazing technology. It could be the best layer one technology out there, but you got to market it and you got to think more like a startup. And if you do that, I think you'll have a lot more on-chain dynamics, more TVL, uh, and it'll be very successful. What I really like about Algorand is that chief technology officers of the big companies love Algorand. So I'll, I'll end it with this one last thing though. In my mind, the layer one that's going to win or get the most market share is the fastest chain. And so if you look at the two chains, Algorand and Solana are quite fast. Solana may be slightly faster. And so uh, if they can you know, dig out of the hole that they're in with FTX and dig out of the overhang of the bankruptcy proceeding is obviously FTX still owns a reasonable amount of Solana. I think Solana's best days are ahead, but they, they got clocked recently because of the fear of all those things. Definitely. Uh, and you, you bring up a lot of points there. The one I want to focus on too, because it's such a good one and a really interesting question to pose is that any product and I've said this for a long time for people who, frankly, don't understand the importance and value of you know brand development and marketing because it is such a critical part of building out anything, especially in early stages, um, which is crypto very much is. So the one thing that I do love about Solana is from a social perspective of how they've been engaging developers in the community and really trying to bring people in, being very engaging. And to your, um, any product is really only as good as its marketing at some point to the fact that, especially in crypto, which is such a competitive space, is such a active space, obviously very top of mind for a lot of people, maybe a little less given recent events. Um, 
how how do you suggest Algorand kind of I mean, or any chain really that's trying to build out their presence, if the tech is as solid as you say, how do they turn that around and how do they get more involved in the community? Because I think that's a really important um, component of scaling. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I mean, these are great questions and, you know, I would love for you to interview Stacy or Sean or the guys that are working at Algorand. But for me, I think it's really simple. I think it's awareness. And I think it's penetration into the market. And I think it's just hiring and scaling people into the top. I would be going into the triangle of Caltech, MIT, and Carnegie Mellon, those computer programming colleges or universities. And I would be going to the young people that are hooked on the crypto and hooked on the blockchain and layer ones and explaining what Algorand is and seeing if you can offer incentives or levels of motivation to get those people to start using Algorand and working on their projects. You know, again, not just NFT projects. Um, there's things called slice space where they're tokenizing real estate. They're using it on Algorand. You've got borderless capital, a guy by the name of David Garcia that's working on these uh, carbon detection, carbon admission detection devices in the cities. And it's such a great idea that where the city will actually pay you to reduce your level of carbon and they can pay you with Algorand tokens as a result of this uh, uh, product that they're putting together. So, so to me, I think it's awareness. I think it's penetration and it's building new markets. You know, you have to think like an entrepreneur in a situation like this. And so that's like Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. How do you take something that's absolutely nothing and turn it into something? Well, the answer is you can't do it overnight, but you can do it with good habits and lots of dedication and just staying on something. Now, they had a fantastic event called Decipher in Dubai. They had probably 1,700 people show up, uh, lots of developers, lots of people discussing the use cases and the forward success of Algorand, and it's a nice-sized community but they need four or five X that number of people to get it scaled to the ambition that would be commensurate to the technology. And so, yeah, these are really good questions, but you know, it's just drive and hard work and digging, lots of digging. Yeah. And it does take a lot of time to penetrate too, especially in a market like this, where there are so many things going on, new projects being developed, so many different ecosystems, you know, thrown into your face on social media at all times. So it definitely is not an overnight thing and it has to be a consistent effort in order to do that. So really interesting that you mentioned that. I do want to pivot a little bit. You alluded to this earlier on, you mentioned the SALT conference, um, have not been to the SALT conference myself, but have had many friends in the industry who say that's one of the best events that they go to every single year. For those who don't know, maybe if you don't mind, a little bit of an overview on how SALT came to be in the beginning and how that's developed over time. And then we can get a little bit more into Crypto Bahamas, which I was at uh, in the relation with FTX. Uh, well, I mean, well, let me start with the SALT conference and we'll talk about FTX and, and the Crypto Bahamas conference. So, you know, for me... Um, we were in the doldrums, uh, not too dissimilar to the time period we're in now, but we were in the doldrums in, uh, I would say, March of 2009. Um, if, if to 
not to bum you out or anything like that, but I think we probably go lower from here. You know, we, mm-hmm. we're having a shit show right now, but you know, uh, when 2008 ended, people are like, okay, thank God 2008 ended, but we went down another 15 or 20% by the end of the first quarter of 2009. And so we were sitting there at the end of the first quarter of 2009 saying, oh my God, that actually turned out to be the bottom. But I was thinking, you know, we're probably going to go out of business at that point. I was going to start a conference business to replace the conferences that pulled out of Las Vegas because Barack Obama at that time did it on purpose, but he was like, hey, you got money from the federal government. Now's not the time to spend that money in the Bahamas. And so I'm sorry, in, in Las Vegas. So if you're a fat cat, please land your plane. So I said, okay, this is a big opportunity for us. So we started something called SALT. We germinated it into a very big conference. Um, there are now a plethora of conferences. I think you know that. You can go to a conference every single day. But back then, there was a real shortage of them. And so we took advantage of that. Um, our conference has been primarily dedicated to asset management and primarily dedicated to the hedge fund space. We started migrating into the crypto world in 2019. Uh, We had to take a pause in 2020 because of the COVID situation. But in the middle of 2021, I met Sam and Sam asked me if he could sponsor SALT. He had heard good things about it and he wanted to have a presence there. And I said, okay, no problem. So he came to the SALT conference and sponsored it. And I think him and his team had a great time. Uh, They were growing their business. Um, I was a seed investor in something called Ledger X. We ultimately introduced them to Sam. Uh, they sold their business. Uh, interestingly enough, they've done such a good job at Ledger X. It's the only entity that didn't go into bankruptcy. So, um, you know, and that'll obviously be sold at some point uh, in the ensuing months. But, but I got close to Sam, uh, respected him, liked him. I'm not a historian where I'm going to revise things. Uh, We've now learned that he's probably perpetrated one of the biggest frauds in financial services history. So it's great sadness to that for somebody like me uh, because I liked him and I trusted him. And he obviously dishonored that. You know, he sort of trampled on that trust. And if, if I ever get upset to the point of anger, which is hard for me to do because it's business and I don't allow myself to get overly react. But I think one of the things that does make me upset about the situation is that, you know, I have 35 years experience on Wall Street. Uh, I've had my ups and downs performance wise. I've had my ups and downs politically, but I've run a very high integrity, very upfront, highly regulated business, tons of people in our office that are compliance centric and compliance focused. And for this guy, this young man, to trample on that, I got to tell you, it's pretty hurtful. I mean, I, I took him to the Middle East, had to meet with some of the most senior people in the region. I took him around to people uh, that were 30-year friends of mine, uh, and I was vouching for him. And so it's disappointing that he turned out to not be who he said he was. And so I know his parents. I know them pretty well. I've met his dad many times, former Stanford Law law tax professor. And uh, as a parent, somebody that has five children, one of which is Sam's age or close enough to Sam's age, um, I can only imagine the pain and the trauma that his dad and his mom, frankly, are going through. And I think, you know, for your podcast listeners, I would say a couple of things. I would say, number one, it's very hard 
to discover fraud. It's easy after the fact. We can all revise history and say, well, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, Tomasic is an idiot and Anthony's an idiot and you know, this person's an idiot and that person's an idiot. But prior to the discovery of the fraud, it's very hard to make those claims. And so uh, I would caution people about revising history. Secondly, I would say is I wouldn't blame the victims. We have a tendency to do that in our society where, oh, you know, Tomasic should have known better or Sequoia should have known better or Skybridge should have known better. Maybe so, but we're in the risk-based business. Uh, we looked at the documentation. We did the due diligence. Uh, it was very hard to discern. Again, if someone wants to commit fraud, you could be in the most regulated industry in the world. You will still be able to perpetrate the fraud. Look at look at the Madoff situation example. He was on the regulated side of the industry. He was based here in New York and look at the fraud that he committed and look how long it lasted. So, you know, those conferences led to us going into business with Sam. And I'll leave you on this one last note. Our trip to the Middle East exposed him because when he was in the Middle East, he was saying lousy things about CZ. CZ got mad and hit him on those tokens. And, you know, I don't think CZ was trying to put him out of business. I think he was just trying to wake him up, um, but didn't realize what a house of cards he was uh, living in. So we're here now. I'm just glad that the fraud got exposed before any more damage was done. You know what I mean? Thank God. Yeah. And I'm glad that it happened now rather than later on, because I mean, who knows? I mean, I guess more information will come out on this, but who yeah, knows but how thank long this God, was going thank God, for, right? You know, right? Yeah. And, you know, the longer that it goes for and the longer that people don't know, the more assets that get poured in, the more opportunity for this whole event to metastasize, which we've obviously seen. And I'm, I'm curious on the fraud point, too, and I want to dig in a little bit there just because throughout history of, you know, the financial services industry, we've seen this happen multiple times. Um, you know, the details of these situations are different, but in the, to your point about hindsight, everything seems obvious in hindsight, but realistically speaking, there's a reason that these situations get to the point of scale that they do. And it's not because these things are obvious to the average person. It's because there are reasons and incentives for people to buy in or the people seem very trustworthy. And to your point, that's very hard to decipher. And especially in the case of FTX, I think the company had positioned itself in such a way that they were really embedded in mainstream culture. Anyone who knew about crypto likely knew about them from what they were doing um, more on the social side of things. It was a very easy onboarding setup for people who were new to the space that seemed a lot more trustworthy as well. And a lot of people were hurt as a result. So as much as people like to say that it was obvious, I mean, to your point, don't rewrite history because it obviously wasn't for a majority of people this entire time until now. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, I, I would I would say to you what I would say to anybody in this situation. I like talking about it because I want to I want people to glean. Um, I want, you know, I want them to hear the story. Because if it protects somebody from not being involved in something like this going forward, I guess the only thing I would say as I backtrack our decision making and as I think about uh, where we are, um, I would say to you that I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to be willing to continue to take risk. I'm not going to back off of Web3. I'm not going to back off of the idea 
that cryptocurrencies and the blockchain are part of our future. Um, and I'm going to try to do the, be the best due diligence that I can, but I'm not going to sit here and overly uh, beat up on myself or my team for the decisions that we made because, again, fraud is fraud and it's very hard to discern. I've had two incidents in my life. I avoided Madoff. I had something called Premium Point. They committed fraud. And I've had Sam. Um, the good news is, though, he gave us the money. And so now we'll work it out with the bankruptcy court uh, in terms of what, what to give back and so forth. So you mentioned you're in the risk business, right? And I think that mm -hmm. a lot of the people criticizing the situation for, you know, why were people buying into this? Again, a lot of these businesses are like yours. They're in the risk business and you're taking a chance. And there always is a chance that that opportunity won't work out the way that you want it to. Maybe fraud wasn't necessarily um, what that what you thought that would look like if it doesn't work out. But for you know the people listening to this, what's your criteria for potential investments in a crypto project? And how would you revise that now um, pre-FTX versus post-FTX, if at all? Yeah, again, you know, it's a good it's a great question, but I think my answer is I'm not sure if I'm changing at all. You know, I I'll, I'll leave you with this thought, okay? And this is perhaps my lifetime's perspective, okay? Um in March of 2000, the Nasdaq cracked. I think it went down probably 50% that month. It eventually got down 80% when the blood was all let out of the NASDAQ. And I had contemporaries of mine that were in their mid-30s at that time, 22 years ago, that swore off investing in technology and said, okay, that's it for me. I've been blown up. I got pets.com with the zero, e-toys, whatever it was, blown up. I'm never investing in this stuff again. And they missed a 22-year generational opportunity to be in technology, you know, you miss Facebook and Apple Computer and Amazon and Google if you do things like that. So I'm going to tell you something, you know, maybe people will think less of me for saying this to you, but I'm not really going to change a lot about what we're doing. You know, I'm going to try to do more due diligence, obviously. We're going to do more background checks. We're going to interview as we do. We're going to interview former employers, employees, you know, et cetera. Um, but other than that, I'm not going to change uh, the risk-taking ethos of the organization that I created. And if you were doing things properly from a due diligence standpoint before, I don't think you should. Um, and maybe maybe people will disagree on that, but I'm with you on that 100%. What I, I So I guess in terms of not changing what your process looks like, specific to crypto investments at least, or crypto projects, what is what is your criteria for investment on that front? I know you mentioned NFT projects before and whatnot. Then there's the more sort of sustainable infrastructure side of things and, you know, chain specific projects and whatnot. What do you and your team specifically look for in this space? Well, again, in Bitcoin, totally different because it's, you know, in my opinion, it's completely decentralized. There's no core management team or anything like that. And it's, uh, I think that will mature and I think it will gain wallets and wallet share. And I think it'll also gain price because of all those things. Um, as it relates to um, companies, um, 
it's always the same thing for somebody like me. It's the X factor. Does the person have the willingness to put their entire energy force and their entire life, life savings, passion, all of that on the business and make the business successful? You know, there's been two or three near death experiences for Skybridge. Skybridge doesn't die because there's a large group of passionate people ethical, high integrity, passionate people that are working at Skybridge. And so we're going to do our best to build it back. We're going to do our best to uh, make a good go of it. What we're not going to do is uh, lament what we've done. We're just not going to do that. So to me, I'm looking for that in the places that I'm investing in. So even if it's a Bitcoin miner, I see guys like that, I'm going to probably put some money with them. If it's a... uh, layer one protocol, uh, which we think could be part of the layer one market share story, you know, we'll be open to doing that, but they have to have that sort of eye of the tiger mentality. I love that. And you mentioned specific to your team too. It's that startup mentality, right? You don't you to finish what you started and it's very much an all in labor intensive, living, breathing thing that you have to be fully committed to. And anyone building in the space, if anyone's listening, I mean, that has to be the mentality there as well, you know, so Mm -hmm. otherwise you're not going to survive. It's way too competitive of an environment to be half in or, you know, suboptimal amounts of effort being put in. Not today. Not today. You know, and uh, you're catching me on a day where I, uh, I, for my family's trust, uh, some money came in. I just bought myself two Bitcoins today. Um, and so you're talking about somebody that's uh, locking and loading and, uh, you know, going to, you know, buy two more Bitcoins in a couple of weeks and two more Bitcoins, you know, and just patiently accumulate enough Bitcoin where it's sizable for us. As a traditional, uh, boring investor and coming from like the asset management space too, love it. Dollar cost average, that thing. <laughs> um, so in terms of, you know, not talking about specific projects now, looking more from like a macro view of crypto, DeFi, Web3, whatever you want to call it. There's about a thousand names now. What do you think the next wave of crypto will look like? You've seen a lot of developments. Where do you think the focus goes from here? So I think, and again, this is my, you know, guess, my guess, but I think what ends up happening here is there's a little bit of a consolidation, less capital flowing. So the smarter businesses will adapt. The businesses that are running out of cash or don't have the best ideas or the layer ones don't have the best ideas, they'll start to go by the wayside. You're going to see more elimination over the next 18 months and a cleansing of the industry, which I predict will be good for the industry long-term. You know, If there's 10 or 12 players that are going to survive, why not get to those 10 or 12 players more quickly than we would have in a uh, in a bull market. I think a bull market covers up a lot of these people, right? What do they say? The uh, You get to see who's swimming half naked when the tide goes out, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, time will tell, right? And clearly not everything will, will survive. Tell. Yeah. Um, so this sort of leads into my last big question. I like to ask everyone this just because we have people come in from a variety of perspectives. Um, well, I, I do have questions sort of on the political side as well, but finishing up on crypto specifically here. Um, for 
the entirety of the space, you know, there are a lot of macro factors, a lot of regulatory factors in terms of crypto and DeFi reaching it's what many would see as his max potential scaling, being more embedded in society over time. Again, we've talked about how that'll take a long time. What do you think it will take to get to that point? And if it never does get to that point, what would be the reason for crypto's quote unquote failure in terms of not reaching that potential that it does have right now? Well, you know, I mean, I'm going to say something very cynical. If I wanted to stop the cryptocurrency movement, if you will, or the blockchain movement, I wouldn't regulate it. Let it be the Wild West. It'll induct lots of charlatans and con men and women, but mostly con men. I mean, let's, who's kidding who, uh, into the space. And it'll scare the living daylights out of people and they'll reduce their capital exposure to it. So, to me, I think you need regulation to make this thing go forward. It doesn't have to be the regulation that Sam Bankman-Fried was recognizing or recommending, but it has to be something so that people feel safe when they're making these investments. So if you want to stop it, don't regulate it and let all these charlatans continue to run rampant in the industry, a result of which will you know, knock people on their, uh, on their asses. Yeah, it it's such a, you know, I, I think we've seen a decent amount of conversation around regulation in crypto. That's definitely not going anywhere. So hopefully agree with you on that it's very necessary for the development of the space and actually making it a sustainable industry. So hope to see more there in the short term, but who's to say? Um, so sort of leading into, you know, more of your experience on the political side of things, obviously have an election coming up. Curious for your take there and curious if we've had guests in the past talk a bit about how crypto has come into conversation in D.C. So from your perspective, what have you seen there and what is your outlook for the election year that we have coming up? You mean the presidential election? Yes. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm still of the camp that there are so many owners of cryptocurrencies in the U.S. that there will likely be positive policy over the next 12 to 24 months. And I'm willing to bet that both presidential candidates will be open-minded to and relatively optimistic towards cryptocurrency because some of these people are frankly, Caitlin, single issue voters. And so what they'll do is they'll say, hey, is this guy for my pocketbook or against it? Or is this woman for my pocketbook or against it? And so if you're a political consultant or a good candidate, why do you want to be on the wrong side of that? Why not be positive towards it? So I think it bodes well the next two years. It's definitely been a hot topic of conversation. So I think it goes without saying anyone in politics now does need to have a stance on that. And it's definitely a very emotionally charged space too. So like like you said, I mean, single issue voters, this would definitely be a hot topic for them. 100%. Totally agree. Well, there's a lot on the horizon as if there hasn't been enough going on this past year. Um, like I said before, even Crypto Bahamas, where I saw you speak, was in April. And it feels like it's been at least five years since then uh, with everything <laughs> that's been going on. Yeah, there's no so, doubt about that. You know, <laughs> not, 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 not no doubt about that. I, I, I'm definitely, um, uh, I'm older and wiser uh, but I'm not going to let cynicism creep in. And so when we saw each other at Crypto Bahamas, uh, it was a great event. It was well attended. We had lots of great speakers. Uh, the markets collapsed after that. 
uh, that was a byproduct of some fraud and some over leverage. The irony, and didn't know it at the time, but the irony is that FTX and Alameda died right after Crypto Bahamas. And so I think they made a decision to fraudulently convey and fraudulently move money from customer accounts into Alameda to keep the whole thing going. Um, and, you know, that that's a disgusting act. It's, it's reprehensible. And so Sam's apology tour right now uh, and the way he's handling it, I would recommend him take a different tact. Got to come clean. You're a young man. Tell the regulators what happened. Expose the problems in the industry. Uh, do it for your family. You know, at this point, don't, you know, you're, you know, you're not coming back from what you did. So let's per- not pretend otherwise. These interviews that he's giving to me, I think, are just misguided and they're, they're ill-fated interviews. They're going to cause him more trouble uh, than he thinks. He's not smarter than the rest of us. You know, we thought he was, but he really isn't. Okay, to per- per- perpetrate a fraud like that, you're not smarter than the rest of us. Agreed. And definitely at the point of no return in all of this. So as a comms person myself, I have been watching from the sidelines, trying not to comment too much on it. But the first thing that I thought of was if I was working with Sam, Sam as a comms, you know, advisor in any way, this would give me the world's biggest headache because I think it does much more bad than good. Obviously more of an apology tour rather than actually owning up and taking responsibility for everything that's been done and all the people that have been hurt. And I also think, you know, if you're thinking selfishly from the perspective of the person who committed these acts, the more that you're speaking publicly and on record is the more opportunity that there is to slip up and to, you know, say something that you didn't mean to say and have that used against you as well. So I definitely am with you on owning up, being honest. I think people are sort of listening to these things, not only because it's a hot topic of conversation, but because they want closure. And I'm really not sure that they're going to get that anytime soon. I wish they would, but I just don't see it happening. I hope hope that he, you know, we agree. Let's put it that way. You know, it's sad. I, I find it sad. There's no, there's no, I mean, listen, there's no amount of money. And I would say this to anybody, don't dishonor your family. You know, my dad was a blue collar worker. Uh, he worked 43 years in hot and cold weather outside as an hourly worker. And he was a crane operator. So I am never going to dishonor my parents by doing something illegal. Okay. It's not going to do it. If you want to call me stupid, if I buy you Bitcoin at 40,000, it goes to 17,000. You want to call me stupid for that? Okay, I'll accept that. But, you know, we're going to account for everything and we're going to be very honest about it. Okay. And I, and I got to tell you, people that are not like that, I don't have a lot of time for. How you do anything is how you do everything at some point, right? I think that's Amen. the quote. So I think that's I think that's a perfect place to end it and really good advice to end with as well. So Anthony, thank you so much for this. We covered a lot. This is fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate it. It's good to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you again. All and right. thank you to everyone for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. Okay. God bless me. That was very good. You're a very good questioner, by the way. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. 
We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency.